can take your Bibles wherever you are and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be reading from Matthew 26. And we'll be reading verses 36 through 50. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 through 50. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, For the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Would you bow with me uh, in prayer as we pray for our church, for our nation, um, for those who may be suffering for our world. Father in heaven, you are the righteous one. You are perfect in holiness, and you call sinners to account. And yet you are the one who also provides a way to salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we come before you now as a broken people as a broken community and a broken nation. A health crisis has killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people across the world and significantly affected the lives of everybody else. And even while nations and local governments debate and scramble to know when and how best to resume life, our sinfulness has been exposed. Governments point fingers at one another, and states disagree on how quickly to reopen, And even in our own daily lives, we see the tension and division that shows us our fallenness. In the midst of this, our sinfulness is further exposed as we take justice into our own hands in the form of protesting and rioting rather than turning to you, the one who is perfectly just. Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Minneapolis that you would help them to persevere in this time of tremendous fear and sorrow. We ask that you bring repentance and faith to this city when all we seem to see is anger and violence, greed and divisiveness and hate. Father, forgive us for our hearts of sin. Father, forgive us for our evil deeds. Unless we forget and shake our own heads at the evil that we see in the world, none of us are without sin. None of us have clean hands. Gracious Father, have mercy on us. Bring us to grief and bring us to sorrow that we may seek a repentance that leads to the knowledge of truth. The truth that you are a holy God, the truth that your word is true, and that we have no hope for peace or unity or redemption or salvation unless we're reconciled first with you through Jesus Christ, your son, the sinless lamb who suffered and bled and died for the very sins that we're seeing on our television screens and that we're seeing in our social media feeds. Forgive us, Lord. May we hear your truth during these sorrowful times, and may we be brought to our knees in repentance as an entire nation. There are many things right now, Lord, that may cause us to fear. Remind us that our hope, though, is not in a vaccine 
or in diplomacy or in a stimulus package or in violence or in protests or in the National Guard. Bring us to find peace and unity in Christ alone. And I ask for peace and unity especially, especially within your church, that we can be a beacon of light in a dark world. As we hope to meet together again, and invariably we encounter disagreements, differences in convictions about the best or safest way of doing things, whether they be amongst different churches or even within the members of our own church with different convictions, Lord, help us to find the path of unity and love that would honor Christ. Would the glory of Christ be the most valuable thing in our hearts, and may that reflect in love for one another and unity in your body. We continue to ask that you heal those who are sick, that you strengthen those who are weary, and we continue to ask for wisdom for our leaders, for the president, for the governor, for the local health officials, and for our own elders of this church. We ask that it would be a humble wisdom that comes from a heart that's submitted to your priorities and not our own. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in the church and in the lives of in our lives during this difficult season. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And even as we consider coming together again, according to your timing, may it be your will that's done. May it be your holiness and love and unity. May that be the outcome uh, of the work that you're doing in our hearts now. Thank you, Lord, because your discipline and your reproof, though it's painful, it's better than the alternative of being left to just pursue our sin. Thank you for providing a way in Christ in whom we are made whole and more. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Special thanks this morning to all who are joining us for our live stream exposition of God's Word and for the AV team once again for Kat Liu and Kevin Lee who are here with us this morning, uh, enabling us to stream to you and also uh, for Chris Lim and Kevin Au who are just helping us put things together here and of course for Ted and for Danny as well and, and especially and, and most importantly, we're thankful for the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Without Him we are indeed Lost, but with him we have a hope that goes beyond the darkness of these times. And as both Ted and Kevin have alluded to, these have been dark days for our nation, for sure, as the sponge of American life continues to get squeezed, not only by the virus, but, but what we are seeing with the brutality and killing of citizens in the states and especially citizens of color. The world at large is getting a chance to see what flows out of our hearts as the Lord allows our hearts and our nation to be squeezed. As that sponge gets squeezed, we see the liquid that runs out. And what we've seen this past week pour out of our hearts uh, with the death of a man killed by police who were supposed to protect, and at the same time, protests that are happening with riots and descending in some areas into looting, and the last four evenings where curfews have been extended in multiple cities. And we see not just on one side, but on all sides, a nation that is erupting in hate and anger and violence with Molotov cocktails on the one hand and rubber bullets on the other hand. And it's hard to distinguish as we see this war of our hearts and sin and violence and apostasy just rage. And as Christians, these things should grieve us and they should break our hearts. Not just some of it, brothers and sisters, all of it should break our hearts, and it should bring us to our knees in prayer. And it's worth being reminded that we at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose, we stand in the tradition of what is referred to as Protestantism. 
That word Protestantism or Protestants, which we refer to ourselves, comes from the word protest. And in its widest scale and spectrum, it refers to protesting to what is not right. But when we go back in history, very, very specifically, the Reformation and what is referred to as Protestant Christianity was a protest, very specifically, within the church for its departure from the authority of Scripture and from its departure from the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was a protest that brought to bear the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the remedy for everything that we see, including corruption, including injustice, including brutality, including violence. The remedy is not more violence. The remedy is having our sin rightly addressed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And the protest that needs to take place needs to be the protest, as Ted and Kevin both alluded to, a protest in our own hearts, where we go to the Lord. And what we protest is any path and any step that deviates from his remedy, from the authority of his word, from sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Christus. A deviation that looks for some remedy apart from the Lord, because any remedy apart from the Lord is going to descend into darkness and destruction and violence. And that, brothers and sisters, is, is what we're seeing. We're seeing a history of America where we have refused to repent. We've refused to come to the Lord. We figured money can buy our way out of all of these things. And as long as everybody's making money, we're all good. And everybody's going to look the other way, including Christians will look the other way to the horrific things that go on that are contrary to the word of the Lord and the sanctity of life. Until we can't turn away anymore, until money can't buy our way out of our problems, and until cities are on fire. And as I've said, as Christians, these things should grieve our hearts. They should break our hearts. But like the psalmist, we need to take our protests to the Lord. And as you read through the Psalms and you read through David's Psalms, you see throughout his Psalms, it's not that David puts a lid on it. It's not that David doesn't complain. It's not that David sucks it up. No. The beauty of what we see in the Psalms is David's testimony that the Lord is his shepherd. And so because the Lord is his shepherd, he has someone he can go to to bear his heart at what is wrong, what is unjust. What horrifies him? And he's able to take it to the Lord. And he's allowed the Lord to shepherd his heart. And to take that heart of anger and pain and sorrow. And to move it to where it needs to be. To the only place that is going to find rest and restoration. And that is the word of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord. And the work of the Lord. Like the psalmist. We need to look to the Lord. And his word. For the light that this nation so desperately needs. And that's exactly what we will do right now. This morning, we return to the light of Psalm 23. To the God-breathed words of Psalm 23. To the inerrant and infallible God-breathed words of King David's song. Of meditation and confession of who the God of the Bible is. His confession of all that God does in love for those who belong to Him and for those who trust in Him as Lord of their lives. And brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time and a moment that we need to stop and be still and know that He is Lord and to meditate and appreciate who He is and what His paths are, His holiness and His righteousness... Now certainly is that time, because that is the light that leads us out of dark places and dark times. You'll recall that Psalm 23 was written by King David to be sung aloud by God's people together as a confession of faith in the presence of the Lord. 
And Psalm 23 would have been sung by the kahal, the assembly, the ecclesia, the formal gathering of the Lord's old covenant people, sung in His presence, in His temple courts, as part of His worship, a worship that would have included blood sacrifices according to the law, sacrifices for sin and for the atonement of sin, but also the singing of a variety of different psalms. And the variety of psalms that would have been sung in the temple would have included psalms and songs of lament. Psalms of lament, expressing the sorrow and heartbreak of this life and bringing the sorrow and heartbreak of this life before the Lord. And they would have also included, at the same time, psalms of praise that express joy and delight in the perfect word and work of God's steadfast love. If we were to be there at that time when these psalms were sung, we would have seen that the songs being sung were not just limited to happy songs. Songs to make our spirits feel good. Songs to lift us up. That the psalms that would have been sung would have been a variety that spanned the entire spectrum of human experience. From lament to praise. And why was this the case? This is because in God's house, in God's worship, and in the lives of His sheep, by God's design and care, there is a place for both songs of sorrow as well as songs of praise. And brothers and sisters, many times we forget this. We feel that we come into the house of the Lord or we gather together and we need to be happy all the time because if you're walking with the Lord, you should have joy in your heart. You need to be happy all the time. But we come to the Psalms and you read through the Psalms and you see the heartache and the pain as well as the praise side by side. And you see that this is not the way the Lord has ordained our worship. The Lord has ordained a worship to care for His people that covers the full range of the human experience, including sadness and heartbreak. And there is a place in God's house for people who are struggling with sorrow and pain and are wrestling with the injustices of this world and the ugliness of the world and the hardship of this world and the sin of this world, whether it be their sin or someone else's. And it's because in this way, the Psalms and the Lord's Word show us that the Lord cares for his sheep and he shepherds his sheep and he is with his sheep not just in the good times but the hard times and the dark times too and that the Lord shepherds his sheep in times of sorrow as well as praise times of sorrow as well as praise we have this notion in our society that when times are tough and we're in a difficult place The lies that Satan sells us is that we're all alone and we've been abandoned. And that's typically because when we're sad, humans don't want to be around us. Who wants to be around that sad person? But that's our sinfulness, brothers and sisters. And how contrary to the heart and spirit of the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, our great high priest who has been tested in every way that we have and is able to show us mercy and grace in our time of need and calls us, especially in those times of sorrows, to draw near to him. Sorrow, sorrow, whether it's over our own sin and failures or the sin and failures of others. And as we go through the Psalms and we think of Psalm 23, we see that somewhere in the middle of these Psalms, guiding us from lament to praise, are the God-breathed words of Psalm 23, with a psalm of lament on the one side and a psalm of praise on the other side. And there it is, Psalm 23, right in between, leading us and guiding us from lament to praise. And there to remind God's people that what leads us from lament to praise is the truth of who God is and how He cares for His sheep in love, even in the darkest of places and times. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 23 once again, and we'll read it together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. As we've noted in past weeks, the good news of Psalm 23 is that the Lord in love, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the sorrows or the darkness, always brings His sheep safely home to Himself. And He does so, as King David explains to us in verses 1 through 3, first by restoring the souls of His sheep by bringing them to repentance and washing them with the green pastures and restful waters of His Word. And it's worth noting here as we look at verse 1 and 3 briefly in review, that the gracious shepherding of the Lord does not stop simply with feeding and washing and resting His sheep. God's loving goal for His sheep is not a vacation in Hawaii. God's loving goal for His sheep is not unmitigated success with great financial remuneration. God's loving goal for His sheep is not even for them just to stay in that place where they're constantly able to eat and feed on His Word and be washed and taken care of and rested and restored. God's loving goal for His sheep is not obesity and idleness, which sadly is what happens when Christians continually feed on God's Word, but they never follow or obey His Word by faith. And they never get up from where they've been fed and taken care of and begin to follow the Lord as He leads them through the rest of the journey. Sadly, brothers and sisters, that can be the picture of many churches in America. Sadly, that can be the picture of what we see as believers filled with the word of the Lord turn a blind eye to the ugliness and things that go on in our world. Unable to move, obese, idle, with theological knowledge and Christian cultural traditions, but unable to move and follow the Lord as He leads. And we see that this is not the goal that God has for His sheep. To the contrary, in love, the Lord feeds His sheep to lead His sheep. In love, the Lord feeds His sheep to lead His sheep. At our boys' school, they offer free school breakfast and school lunch. And they do so for those who are in a low socioeconomic bracket. And they do so to provide it for children who might be hungry and might not have food of their own or might not be able to get to school with something in their stomach. And why do they do that? Do they do that so the children can sit there at those school tables and eat free food for the entirety of the day? Absolutely not. They do it because all the research and studies show that these children, if they don't get recess and if they're not fed and if they don't have food in their stomachs, they are unable to sit in a classroom and learn from their teachers. And why are these children in school? So that they can be in school for the rest of their lives? Is that why we send our children to elementary school and high school? So that they can be in college and so that they can be in school for the rest of their lives? No, absolutely not. The idea is that we're feeding the body and we're feeding the brain so that these children can go on and participate in society and contribute to society and use the gifts that God has given them in a constructive way rather than a destructive way. And brothers and sisters, that's obvious to the Board of Education and to, to, to a world of unbelievers. Sometimes it's not obvious to us that the goal of God's feeding and washing with His Word 
The goal of bringing us repentance is not fat and sleepy sheep, but rather strong and healthy and alert sheep who are able to follow God's lead in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The Lord feeds us and cares for us and restores us because He knows until our sin is addressed with and until we're restored and until we're filled with the nourishment and strength of His Word, we're not able to follow Him on paths of righteousness because paths of righteousness necessarily pass through some very dark and difficult terrain. That brings us to our first point this morning. God's paths of righteousness necessarily pass through dark valleys. God's paths of righteousness necessarily pass through dark valleys. The good news of God's word is that the Lord is a shepherd who always leads his sheep home. And he does so by leading them the right way. And paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And you'll recall, paths of righteousness are not the paths that we necessarily think are right. And paths of righteousness are not the paths of our righteousness. Psalm 25, 4, where David pleads for wisdom and help from the Lord. He says to the Lord, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And then later, the psalmist in Psalm 119 writes in verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to whose word? Our words? No, by guarding it according to your word. And throughout the Psalms and throughout Scripture, paths of righteousness are the paths of God's word. They're the paths of God's written instruction to his people. They are the paths of God's righteousness and not our righteousness. And these are the only paths that keep us pure, that protect us from sin, and that bring God's sheep home. And any path apart from God's Word, be it in our marriage, our family, our work, or paths that lead away from God and away from His righteousness. Brothers and sisters, somehow we think... And we're seeing it played out in our world today. That God's word is only for within these walls. That God's word applies when we come into church. At, and brothers and sisters, sometimes barely then do we think God's word is here to provide us with instruction about how we're to worship him. But as far as our work goes, as far as our parenting goes, as far as our family goes, it's whatever we think is best. And we're surprised when our streets are on fire and African-American men are being killed in the streets by policemen. We're surprised. We're shocked. America the good. And why should we be shocked when we barely look to the Lord to lead us in His own house of worship? Brothers and sisters, any path apart from God's Word in our marriages, our family, our work, our law enforcement, our government, our world, our paths that will lead to fire and destruction. And Scripture and King David make very, very clear that there is only one way that the Lord leads. And that is in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Because that is the only way that will bring his sheep home to him. But as King David points out in verse 4, contrary to much wishful thinking in the church, paths of righteousness necessarily lead through some very dark and dangerous places. And in verse 4, King David shows where he must walk if he is to follow the Lord's lead. He must walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this metaphor, the valley of the shadow of death, it brings to bear this image, which is really the opposite of the mountaintop, the opposite of sunny places, the opposite of places of joy and happiness. 
When I think of this, I think it's the opposite of that opening scene in The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music, you see Julie Andrews. I know that's a little bit dated, but eventually most of our children will walk through it. Where that opening scene, you're in the Swiss mountains, and you see beautifully, or the Austrian mountains, and you see beautifully this huge mountain vista, and the camera swings around, and there's this pretty young lady who sings, the hills are alive with the sound of music, and everybody's joyous and rejoicing. Well, the valley of the shadow of death is the exact opposite of that. The valley of the shadow of death suggests dark and tight and low crevices, where visibility is poor, where vulnerability is high, where nobody wants to go and nobody sings and nobody jumps up and down because danger and death is breathing down your neck and there is no easy way out. This is where David must walk if he's going to follow the lead of his shepherd. And as a shepherd in Bethlehem, David was all too familiar with the danger and the dangerous but necessary task of leading his father's sheep through a countryside that was filled with narrow, precipitous ravines and crevices and valleys that were difficult to get into, harder to get out, and that were dark, and they were gloomy, and they were abounding with holes and caves that were filled with snakes and wild beasts and bandits. I recall being in the Middle East and being with the tour guide and having the opportunity to sleep out under the stars with the Bedouin in their tents in the middle of the desert. And there were any number of different areas called wadis, these narrow crevices that streams go through in the wintertime when there's water, but become empty valleys in the other seasons when there is no water to run through them. And our tour guide offered us the opportunity to do so, but with the provision and advice that you do want to be aware that some of these tents in the middle of the night, snakes come in in order to get out of the cold areas that they're at. My initial response was, I will take the hotel and I will pass on sleeping out in the wadis and in the crevices and in the romantic places under the stars. King David knew what he was talking about. Valleys in these areas were places where shepherds went through by necessity and that you had to get through and in and out as fast as possible. But King David also knew that even more dangerous than being a shepherd in Bethlehem was the danger of following the Lord in paths of righteousness as his sheep. As you read through the Psalms, you'll see King David makes it very clear that we live in a fallen world. And very specifically, the points that get made over and over again is we live in a fallen world that is very specifically hostile to the Lord and His Word. And as we read through First and Second Samuel and the Psalms, we see David makes the point, by virtue of walking with the Lord according to His Word, by virtue of being the servant of the Lord, by virtue of being a sheep who is following the Lord, King David frequently finds himself in some very, very tight spots. To make things even more heartbreaking, not only does David find himself in some very dark and sad and tight spots, by virtue of being the servant of the Lord, the chosen one of the Lord, he has become the target of the Lord's enemies. It's like he's got a sign on his head that everybody who hates the Lord is going to especially hate King David. And this is not just pagans, brothers and sisters. These are those who are among the professing worshipers of God. In fact, those tend to be the worst, the most vicious. When you read David's Psalms, and you see that David must deal with dark places where there are those like King Saul who are attacking him. Outwardly, professing to be a worshiper of the Lord and a leader of the Lord's people. But inwardly, actively trying to destroy the servant of the Lord. And David has to experience this with his own family, with Absalom. 
We see the same pattern with Moses, with Job, with Jeremiah, with the Apostle Paul, where following the Lord includes dark and lonely valleys and no shortage of friendly fire. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We see Paul writing in Ephesians 6, saying we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He's making the point after this glorious epistle on our unity and holiness in Christ, that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle because we are united, not with this world, but we're united with Christ. And we see this most visibly in the life of God's Son, where Jesus only walks through paths of righteousness. And even as he walks through paths of righteousness, that does not mean that Jesus has an easy life. To the contrary, paths of righteousness take Jesus to places where he is hungry, where he is thirsty, where he is tired, where he is physically exhausted, where he is lonely, where the absence of faith around those who have seen his miracles repeatedly at times, causes him to cry out to the Lord. Paths of righteousness take Jesus to places where he is hated by those who profess the name of the Lord. We see this in John chapter 15, where he explains to the disciples, right after he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you need to abide in me, and my desire is my joy would be in you. He goes on to say in the second half of John 15, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he makes the point, nowhere is that hate seen more visibly than in the community of faith. Brothers and sisters, just because we're following the Lord on paths of righteousness does not mean we get a pass on the sorrows and adversity and darkness of this world. And brothers and sisters, just because we're in the church doesn't mean that the church is going to be an exception to this. And many times with new believers, that's the shock. They begin, they start serving in ministry. They come with joy and happiness after the Lord has brought them to repentance, after He's cleaned them, after He's removed sin out of their life, after He's restored them. And they begin to serve. And then things don't go the way they'd hoped or planned. Or things don't work out the way they expected. And they're devastated. Now, brothers and sisters, that does not excuse us. We need to be above reproach. We need to do everything in our life to remove stumbling blocks from young believers. But at the same time, Jesus would always shepherd his disciples and let them know, if you're following me, there are some dark valleys you're going to need to walk through. And some of the people who you think are your friends are going to turn out to be your enemies just because you're following me. We live in a world that tells us right choices and right paths lead to sunny days and mountaintops. It leads to the sound of music. And the implication is that if you're in a valley for whatever reason, you've made the wrong choice, you've taken the wrong path, and you're going in the wrong direction. Not so, Psalm 23. In verse 4, King David makes explicitly clear the paths of righteousness the Lord always leads His sheep in. They do not go around the valley of the shadow of death. They go directly through the valley of the shadow of death. But King David also confesses, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord's sheep need not be afraid of the dark, ever. Brothers and sisters, what separates the Lord's sheep from the world is not our circumstances. It's not our paycheck. It is not what's in our bank. It's not our college degree. It's not our friends. And sadly, sometimes it's not even the churches we worship in. What separates the Lord's sheep from the world is our response to the dark valleys of this life. And it's worth noting King David's response to walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And it's especially worth noting what King David does say and what he does not say. King David, in verse 4, does not say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not suffer, I will not struggle, I will not be lonely, I will not be attacked, I will not have a hard time. He does not say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will have a great time. I will always be joyful because I'm so godly and I'm so righteous and I study my Bible and I know lots of theology and I'm spiritually mature. What he does say is that in the most dangerous and darkest places this world has to offer, he personally will fear Now, when he says will fear, he means ongoing without end. Ongoing without end. He personally will fear no evil. When he says no evil, he means categorically, across the board. He will fear no evil. He will fear nothing this world, whether it's from a police station or from looters. COVID-19, within the church, outside the church. He will fear no evil, including the evil of death. And why? What is the reason he will fear no evil? Is it because he's rich and smart and powerful and he makes good choices and he knows what to do? And he knows the right things to say. And he's godly and he's the right kind of Christian. King David mentions none of these things. He mentions none of the things that, quite honestly, we frequently look to. For courage and for comfort and for confidence in the dark. And why? Because he doesn't need any of these things. The reason he will fear no evil is given in three simple Hebrew words. And when they're translated into English, they turn into five words that sum up the entirety of the gospel and the entirety of the good news of God's word. For you, meaning you yourself personally, Lord, for you are with me. This brings us to our third and final point for this morning. The Lord is personally with His sheep, not sometimes, but always. What sets King David free from anxiety and fear in the darkest of places has nothing to do with himself or his circumstances. It has everything to do with who God is, according to His Word. The Lord is my shepherd. He is not just the Almighty Creator, He is the God who in love has personally entered into my darkness to lead me through it, to walk with me. He's the God who will not abandon his sheep. We see this throughout the entirety of the Psalms and the entirety of God's word over and over and over again, brothers and sisters. What gives King David confidence, what gives the apostles confidence, what gives the men of God and the servants of God confidence, it's not their ability or their means. Moses says to the Lord, I can't speak. Jeremiah says to the Lord, I'm a young man. I lack the street credibility. And the list goes on and on and on. Gideon tries to hide. It's never the circumstances, brothers and sisters. And we look at that for how often, brothers and sisters, we blame shift. I can't do it because A, B, C, D, and E. It's because of what you did. And we see in this world that we live in, we've been living in a world of blame shifting. And now where everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. And the real heart cause is never addressed, which is our own hearts. And our own hearts and the testimony of our own hearts is we are inadequate to honor the Lord. We are unable to love one another. We are unable to treat one another justly. 
Whether we're in the White House or we're wearing a police badge or we're wandering on the streets in protest, we're unable to do what's right, brothers and sisters, because our hearts are far from the Lord and they're filled with sin. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not in politics or violence or anything that we can do. David's hope is not who David is. It's who the Lord is. It's who the Lord is and what he's done. And the fact that the Lord is his shepherd and he is with him. And so we see in Psalm 1610, David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. And in Psalm 139.7, David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Verse 10, now mark these words, verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And he conjures up this image of a father walking his child by the hand, leading his child by the hand through a difficult place, carrying this child. Your right hand shall hold me. David's confidence is in the steadfast love, the mercy and grace of God that is given to us through the word of the Lord. And when King David says in verse 4 of Psalm 23, You are with me. Without a doubt, he's pointing to the very real and personal presence of God in his life. But brothers and sisters, he's pointing to so much more. He's pointing to the testimony of God's perfect and inerrant word. That in Genesis 28.15, where God says to Jacob at Bethel, I will be with you. It's a low point in Jacob's life. And a low point in no small part to Jacob's sin in his own life. God says in mercy and grace, I will be with you. And then in Exodus 3.12, the Lord says to Moses, I am with you. Later after David, in Isaiah 7.14, but the same testimony of the word that that David's pointing to is the promise of a sign of salvation to a people who do not deserve it. A virgin will give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The gospel is not what you and I can do to claw out and make the situation better. The good news of the gospel is God entering our darkness, God with us. And in Scripture, when God is with someone, in love and faithfulness, He is not simply by their side. He is on their side. He is actively involved and committed to giving everything to bring his sheep through the darkest of places, even if it costs him his own life. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is not some kind of soccer dad or mom who stands at the side, by the sidelines, and cheers his children on, and shouts and screams at the ref. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord says He is with us, He means He is walking through that valley and He is willing and able and does give His very own life just to be with us and to carry us through. And this is what the Apostle Paul points to in Romans 8.31 where he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
Now get this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, that's what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians this past year. That it... It's because our lives are united with Christ, because God has united our lives with Christ, that He has given us all things, that everything that we need, we have in Christ, because God is with Christ, and because we're with Christ, God is with us. Brothers and sisters, the Lord does not save His sheep by changing their circumstances. The Lord does not save His sheep by turning His sheep into some sort of superhero that's going to be able to go out and pound everybody around them. He doesn't save His sheep by making their life easy or taking shortcuts or finding an easier road to bypass that valley of the shadow of death. God saves His sheep and He gets them home by giving His life to be with them. Always. And this, brothers and sisters, is the testimony of Ephesians 1 through 3. And this is what sets King David free from fear in the darkest of valleys. And this is what gives King David confidence and comfort and courage in the face of danger and death. It's not his circumstance or anything in himself, it is entirely his faith in the God who is with his sheep. Always, even if it costs that God, His very own Son. Well, this, of course, asks the question, how do I know if God is with me? How do I know if God is with me? As we walk through the history of the church, we see wars being fought, with both sides of those wars claiming that God is with them. Certainly when we saw the Twin Towers come down, the clear testimony of those who were involved to bring it down was that Allah was with them, that they were doing it in the name of the Lord. When we go through history, we see men like Hitler using Scripture to say God is with us and to use that Scripture, different verses that they pull out to justify the destruction of the Jews. Sadly, we see Christians doing the same thing using pieces of Scripture to justify the prosperity gospel, that somehow God is with them because they are blessed materially and they're successful and they've got good jobs and good marriages and the big home and everything that is part of the American dream. And on a lower level, this idea or notion that God is with us when we're doing well or we're feeling good about ourselves or we have peace in our hearts or, or we're free of stress. And so we live these lives which are all about avoiding stress and avoiding dark valleys. We see the same thing over and over again, whether it's the Christian church or all the other religions of the world, where most religious people think God is with them because they occasionally say or do or believe the right things. But brothers and sisters, nobody ever got to heaven and nobody got home by believing, quote-unquote, the right things. Psalm 23 points us in a very different direction. David's faith is in a person, the Lord and the Lord of the Scriptures. Psalm 23 points us in a, in a very different direction to show us how we can know that the Lord is with us. And in many ways, as you read Psalm 23, when you get to 1 John, which are the tests of true fellowship, John in 1 John is, is really in many ways expanding what we find in this one psalm. How do we know if God is with us? Well, Psalm 23 points us in the right direction, in a very different direction than what I've just mentioned. Psalm 23 points us to the Lord and His Word. And the way He leads. And it raises the question for us, are we by faith following His lead? Are our lives and our marriages, our work, our relationships with one another, our worship, every aspect of our lives, 
Are we following His lead and the lead of His Word rather than our own lead? We work with this with our family. So often, what's right or wrong is dictated by our feelings. And we live in two cultures as Asian Americans. We live in an honor-shame culture, and we also live in a millennial culture, which is about easy and hard. And what's right and where we go is based on whether something is easy or whether it's hard. Whether I feel good or whether I feel bad. And it's all mixed together with this Asian American notion of honor and shame. What, what is the place where I'm honored and what is the place that I'm going to avoid where I'm going to be humiliated and shamed? But the good news of the gospel in Psalm 23 discards all of that and trashes all of it. You can't judge by your feelings. You can't judge by your honor because it's always going to lead you in the wrong direction, as is your shame. The only path that's going to lead you home are the paths of righteousness. And the only person who's going to lead you home is the Lord. And He always leads in paths of righteousness. How do we know if the Lord is with us? We know if the Lord is with us if we're walking in His ways. We know that the Lord is with us if we are following by faith His lead, even if it means walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And brothers and sisters, that's many times the big division. We're willing to walk with the Lord and follow His lead when it means belonging to a church family. We're willing to walk with the Lord in His ways when it means we've got new friends. We're willing to walk with the Lord in His way when there's joy and festivity and events and things are going well. But when the way of His Word leads to the valley of the shadow of death, that's many times where it's like, this doesn't feel right, I don't think so, I'm going to step off the train here. How do we know, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is with us? For Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Apostle Paul, And King David, they knew because by faith they were able to follow his lead even through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is the real test of whether God is with us. And this is what Jesus points out in Matthew 7.13. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter By it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, it's worth noticing that Jesus, when he's addressing that in the Sermon on the Mount, is addressing the disciples. He's not addressing all the people in the pagan nations. And then in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, where does that leave us, brothers and sisters, in these dark times? We must look to Jesus. And we must follow him. And as we look to Jesus, and if you read the rest of the passage that Kevin read for us this morning. You'll see as you walk through that Jesus did indeed protest. Jesus didn't give a pass to people who abused the law. But his protest never got in the way of walking on the path of the cross. And as he walked that path of the cross, he explained to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my followers would do things differently. But they're not out there with the sword and fighting and using force and functioning like Roman soldiers. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is in a valley moment, his disciples have fallen asleep. Injustice is about to be perpetrated. The men he's loved and labored and poured into can't stay awake. And he is confronted that what the Lord has before him is going to crush his soul. What does Jesus do, brothers and sisters? He prays. And he submits to the leadership of the Father. 
and the leadership of the Spirit, and the leadership of what's written in the Word. And he says, not my will be done, Lord, but thy will be done, Father. Brothers and sisters, that's the test of whether the Lord is with us. Jesus looks to the cross because he knows it's only the path of the Father, the path through the cross, that has any hope of removing our sin, of bringing us to repentance, and of giving us peace. Real peace. Peace that removes sin. And that's why Paul says, He Himself is our peace. And that's why Paul says, I will boast in nothing but the cross, because it's at the cross that we surrender our lead. And we say, Lord, You take over. You lead us. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to walk through the valley the Lord's way? You need not fear, because those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death do so with the shepherd who is with them always. And because of who he is, and because he is with his sheep, not just standing by the sidelines. There is hope of getting home, there is hope of peace, and there is hope of remedy that this world cannot offer. Many years ago, while I was working on the trauma unit, working as a resident in a trauma center, We would see horrific cases come in, usually from the hours of 1 o'clock in the morning all the way through 7 o'clock till the shift was over. People who were stabbed, people who were shot, people who were in car accidents, people who had been in fights and had been beating one another. And you'd get the call and you'd be warned by the ambulance that the crew was coming in and they would tell you over the phone what was coming in, knife wound, gunshot, all of those different things. And the stress level would go through the roof and you'd run with your team. And you get everything set up and you do everything and follow the protocols in order to stabilize these people. And you'd give the report to the head trauma surgeon. And things were always stressful until the head trauma surgeon came in. And then he would take over the case. And then there would be a spirit of relaxation among the team and the nurses, and probably the nurses that they did no longer had to follow the resident, but the expert, the head trauma surgeon was here. And then the head trauma surgeon would come in and he'd take over. And he'd do all the heavy lifting, and he'd get in and do all the details, and he would order the different people around. And at the end of the clay case, after he had stabilized this patient, sometimes if he was feeling benevolent, he would allow me to close up, say, okay, Mark, you can sew up the patient. And it was sweet of him and kind of him. He wanted to give me an opportunity or a sense that I could participate in the surgery. But at the end of that, it's not like I went out to other people and boasted, oh, we saved this person's life. We did this amazing thing. At the end of the day, the person who had done the heavy lifting was the head trauma surgeon. And the reason there was peace in that and there was relaxation and people weren't fighting is because the person who knew what to do was in charge and he was handling the business. And it was also because we knew if anything went down or anything bad happened, it would be the head trauma surgeon who would be in the firing line and not us. And so it was with joy and gladness that everybody on that team, nurses, Residents, interns, secretaries were more than happy and joyful when the head trauma surgeon came in to take over the case and were more than happy to relinquish control and let him run the case because it was only in his hands that we had any hope of making it through the night. Brothers and sisters, we have someone far greater than a trauma surgeon who has given his life to be with us. Are you following his lead? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you in dark times. We come to you in dark circumstances. We come to you at a time in our nation where injustices have been perpetrated 
on countless levels. Not only by the police, but the people in the streets as well. We need you to lead us. We need you to take over our hearts and our lives. We need you to take over this nation. We need you to take over the police department. We need you to take over the streets. But Lord, it begins with us. Lord Jesus, would you give us the faith we need to follow you, not just some of the time, but all of the time. Would you give us the strength we need to follow you through the valley of the shadow of death? Would you give us the faith we need that when we cannot see and things are not visible and the road is hard, that we would trust that the one who is with us, who we are following, is nothing less than the one who has given his life on the cross so that you might be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.